this. Uh, it's good to see everyone this morning. Uh, I'm excited about we are in this series uh, where we're in Colossians talking about what it means to walk worthy. And uh, we're in Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 9 to 14 or the Paul's prayer that he uh, is praying over the church at the beginning. And uh, really what we're going to end up talking about in a little bit is the idea of ladders and labyrinths. We'll get to that in a moment. I want to start uh, by praying and then um, just inviting us to read the passage. Before I pray, let me say this. The morning gathering for prayer, I would highly encourage you to participate, uh, not just because I believe in the power of prayer, but I actually believe that if we as a community engaged in that space before we engaged in this space, uh, we would be more uh, prone to hear from God, uh, to be moved by the Spirit in ways that uh, actually bring about uh, life change. So I would encourage you, uh, make that a priority, especially over the Lenten season, uh, to lean into that. Let's pray. God, we know that you are present with us. We are aware of your presence. And uh, at times, though, we are less aware of it than we should be. That you are constantly with us, you're around us, you're near us. And I pray that this morning we would sense that in a profound way, that we might be encouraged uh, by this passage, by the truth that we'll look at, and uh, may it motivate us uh, to walk worthy to be um, children of you that pursue knowing you and loving you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, will you stand with me as we read Colossians 1, 9 to 14? I'll read it. You can uh, just follow along. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his, God's will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You may be seated. <clears throat> now, when you look at that passage, uh, one of the first things that probably should come to your mind is how much stuff is packed into those verses. It is so rich. It is filled with so much material. And one of the joys and challenges of teaching or communicating is trying to figure out how do you put all of that into a precise and uh, precise package that somehow is supposed to speak to or challenge uh, people in their faith. And there's a lot of approaches that you can take. And in fact, as I've um, preached or taught or communicated about this passage in the, in the past, I have taken multiple approaches at it. And I figured I would just share really quickly some ways that you can look at the text because it can be helpful for us uh, to consider. First off is the basic kind of 
uh, surface approach and really asking the question, what is Paul doing in the text? What is, what is he involved in? What is he participating in? And the answer, as we know, is quite simple. We have not ceased praying for you. Paul is praying. He's, what, he, what we're reading is his prayer for the church uh, in Colossae. And if I was going to give a talk on this, the format would be pretty simple, and it would be really uh, talking about how Paul models prayer, then I might give an inspiring quote about the power of prayer. Then I would say, hey, not only does he model it, he continues in it. He says to do it without ceasing, to be persistent in it. And I might encourage you or tell a story of what it means to be persistent in prayer. And then um, Paul is inviting us to pray by his very action. And so the last kind of idea would be to invite all of us into prayer. That's a bit of a surface glance at this passage and one that I think carries deep importance. Uh, in fact, this week I went to a prayer luncheon. Uh, I got to be honest, I don't like pastor luncheons. Uh, I don't go very often, but I uh, was persuaded to go to this one. It was a two-hour luncheon uh, on prayer. We prayed for two minutes or four minutes or so. At the end of, I had some awful soup, some not great salad, and, uh, and heard about prayer for a long time, but never actually engaged really in prayer until the very end. Uh, so these kind of um, things often don't motivate or challenge us to engage in prayer in the way that I think Paul invites us to. So you can take a second or maybe a deeper approach to the text, and this is one where we begin to ask, what is Paul praying for? Um, and I, I think this can be a real powerful way uh, to look at the text, to really try to inspect it, to ask the question of what is Paul uh, starting to get at um, based on what it is he's praying for. And if, uh, if you've been around New Community for a while, you would have heard me give that exact same talk uh, June 22nd, 2008. I'm going to guess many of you weren't here, but here would be the quick recap. Paul prays for four specific things. In verse 9, He's asking that you'd be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Kevin talked about that idea last week, what it means to be filled uh, with spiritual wisdom and understanding. In verse 10, his second request is that we would walk worthy or lead lives that are worthy of the Lord. As a result of that, it means that we'd be fully pleasing and bearing fruit in every good work. Then verse 11, he prays that we'd be made strong, and that strength comes from God's glorious power so that we would have endurance and patience. And then his fourth request is that we would joyfully give thanks to the Father or have gratitude. And that gratitude would center around the ideas of uh, us being uh, uh, sharers of the inheritance as sons and daughters of the King. Uh, later on, it talks about forgiveness and redemption um, in the verses that follow. And so that would be what we are to be grateful for. Again, what Paul is getting at is what would be described as a bit of a pattern. And the pattern is that first we know something. I receive a knowledge of the will of God or I study the scriptures or I know what it means to want to follow God. I then move into a space where I'm beginning to do something. There's an action. I'm walking out my faith. I'm being empowered in my faith. 
uh, to have strength and patience or endurance. And then last, that those actions of knowing and doing would result in me being something. And that would be a person of gratitude, a person that understands the redemption and the forgiveness that I've been given. Uh, And even a person that, as the text describes, is one that is bearing fruit. And so if we were going to like take time to really dig into those four requests, we would talk about the important words in each of them, right? Each of those requests. So we'd talk about things like what it means to be filled, like Kevin talked about last week. We'd talk about the will of God. What does it mean to know the will of God? Uh, We would talk about how do we live worthy? What are the expectations of being a follower of Christ? Uh, We'd talk about how strength comes not from within, but from God, the text communicates, which then enables us to live in a particular way, or as the text says, with great power. I would probably then tell you that the Greek word for power is dunamis, which is dynamite, which then we would talk about the strength of that power, and then finish with gratitude. And our invitation would be to, to, to walk in this, to lean into it, to pursue it to be people who open ourselves to God's movement in our life in those ways. But as I was going through the text and been praying about it for a while and thinking about it, I found myself not really interested so much in what Paul was doing or what he was uh, praying for, but more I was concerned with the why. So not the what, but the why. And I want to take the next few moments to really look at what I think is a third approach you can take when you're looking at this text and to say, why is Paul praying for these things? What is his point? What does he want for the church? And what, likewise, does he want for us? So let's not focus so much on the what, but really try to hone in for the next few moments on the why. Because I think what Paul is getting at is a profound and important thing for the church, and that is a word we often throw around called discipleship. Uh, I prefer the word maybe spiritual formation, the way that God is forming or changing or working on who we are as his children. And what Paul is praying for, and this is the the big why, is really that the people of God would experience and live into an ever-increasing spiritual maturity, that they would become more and more mature in their faith. They would look more and more like Jesus Christ. And he's trying, I believe, in these first few verses to connect the reality of the gospel to their daily lives, that there is something called the good news of Jesus Christ or the gospel And it intersects deeply with our every single day of our life. And yet often in the church, I think we have these disconnects between the gospel as this theoretical thing and then the life I live on a day-to-day basis. And what I think this text is doing is calling us to a spiritual formation that connects the gospel to the way we live. And so, with all of that said, uh, this morning, the idea is to look at spiritual formation through ladders and labyrinths, okay? And uh, when you came in, you had a chance to grab a sheet of paper. If you did not get a sheet of paper, Chad right here, you want to hold that up? Guys, does Chad not look good? He came back from a week in Hawaii. Yeah. 
He's got that Hawaii glow, you know? Like, thanks, bud. Uh, so if you do not have one of those, uh, I think Julie and Brooke have some in the back. Also, if you do not have a pen or a pencil, uh, what I'm going to encourage this morning is a little bit of doodling. Um, just to kind of draw out some of what I'm going to show on the screen. Brooke has uh, put together some really uh, great visuals for us, but I think there's something to be said about actually doodling it out yourself. So on one side, I'm going to have you doodle the idea of spiritual formation as ladder. And then on the other side, I'm going to ask that you would doodle a little bit on spiritual formation as a labyrinth, okay? So that's what we're going to do here over the next few moments. Now, when you think of spiritual formation as a ladder, this is an image that uh, I think the church often uses when it talks about spiritual formation. And a lot of churches, Christians, uh, groups would use this particular approach. And it, uh, you can show the ladder. And it might be, I'm not saying it's not the most uh, helpful way of thinking of it, but it, it might not be uh, the most helpful uh, we tend to think, and you can just kind of doodle this out on your sheet of paper, we tend to think of spiritual growth as following a particular trajectory, that there's movement in it, but uh, that movement is more or less vertical, that there are uh, steps you take or rungs of a ladder that you begin to ascend. And so if we're looking at this particular prayer, the idea would be that we would grow in the knowledge of God as our knowledge of who he is and his will begins to build, we move toward walking worthy. We start to live that out in a practical way. And then as we begin to live that out, we then have to do that with more strength and more power and more endurance. And so we keep at it and we keep at it. And ultimately, we get to this space where uh, we can live into gratitude for all that Christ has done in our lives. And it's a bit of a, whether you want to call it steps or rungs to a ladder, there's a bit of movement in it, right? And this is one of the ways that the church often speaks of the idea of spiritual formation is like a ladder. Now, I'm convinced that this might not be the most helpful uh, kind of way of thinking about spiritual formation. And so what I want to do is maybe have us dialogue on a little bit. And uh, on your sheet of paper where you have your ladder or whatever, you can, around it, write some of these words that maybe we toss out that could help us to understand its shortcomings. So if you were to evaluate this particular model of spiritual formation, what would you suggest are some of the downsides or the uh, hindrances of this particular model? Any thoughts? Okay. There's only one way, there's only one path, okay? I would, I would call that uniformity, okay? So maybe you can write that on your piece of paper. The idea of uniformity. We have created within the church um, a 10 steps to spiritual growth. We love programs. We love uh, you move from first base to second base to third base, uh, that you like ascend through what discipleship 101 class, then 102, then 103. Uh, everything is about like the practicals, right? 
um, we become programmatic in the way we do it. So instead of uh, marriage mentoring, which is what we offer here, uh, we think we can make it uniform and so we have marriage class. Or we offer uh, the, the 10 steps to um, spiritual growth and what we're really asking you to do is just sit there and listen to it rather than participate in it anyway. And so uniformity is a, a challenge. I think it also communicates that it only happens in one particular way and that it is, it's the same for everybody, no variation, all right? So uniformity, what else? Give me another maybe downside or hindrance to this particular model. It seems backwards. Yeah, you might. Yeah, okay. Uh, so it feels like the easiest thing is at the top. I, I'm going to guess some in the room would go, man, gratitude is the hardest thing for me. Others in the room would say, absolutely, out of the goodness of God to me, I then become grateful, and that gratefulness motivates me to live a particular way. So yeah, it, uh, it speaks to that, that challenge for sure. What else? Yeah, great. A lack of forward motion is seen as weakness. So if you stop at one particular rung on the ladder, um, then maybe you're not where you need to be um, in terms of growth. Okay? Unhealthy comparison. Absolutely. Um, I, would, I would say not only comparison, I think it creates a hierarchy. Uh, what I mean by that is I've arrived and you have not. I'm further up the ladder than you are, which gives me permission then to look down on you because I've matured more. Um, so it creates this comparison and it creates this hierarchy. Okay, again, these are words you can kind of jot on your doodle to help you think through this model. Any others stand out? Yeah, there's a finish line. Uh, you could use the word maybe an arrival, like you've arrived at your destination. Um, I think it creates this idea that you can have confidence to grow to a spot and then, yeah, I'm there. I've arrived. I don't have any more growth to do. I'm at the top of the ladder. There's nowhere else to go from here. Any others? Yeah. Say that again. Yeah. So it's, instead of seeing them progressively, um, they're actually all needed all at the same time, and yet maybe we eliminate one or feel like, hey, I've accomplished that one. It's not needed anymore in order for growth to continue to happen. Good. Any others? I think this model, I'll throw out a couple. This model kind of separates, if you can go to the next slide, it separates uh, people. So what I mean by that is some, it creates like an idea of insiders and outsiders, um, that you're, you're not actually even on the ladder. Therefore, I'm on the ladder. I'm an insider. You're an outsider because you are just kind of looking at the ladder. You're considering the ladder. It might even imply that like it's impossible to even be discipled until you're on the ladder, which I would disagree with. Discipleship happens from the very beginning. 
Uh, we're all being discipled all of the time, regardless of whether we're on the ladder or not. Um, I think it also creates, this model can create a complacency. So if you look at the individual on the bottom, and it's kind of still working to ascend up the ladder, uh, there is a tendency to look at the person who maybe is further up the ladder and go, oh, I, I understand. Leadership is for the person who's arrived. Leadership is for the person at the top of the ladder. Service is for the person at the top of the ladder. Discipling others is for a person at the top of the ladder. I'm not as far in my faith. I'm not as mature. I, so I don't really actually need to engage. I don't need to give. I don't need to serve. I don't need to support. I don't need to be involved in the life of the church in any way because I'm not ready for it yet. Right? So it creates this complacency because I might not even be motivated to. Like, I'll just hang out right where I'm at. So as you can see, there, there are a lot, and we, we don't have to continue to belabor it, but on one side of your sheet, you could have this ladder with a lot of those words that kind of describe what I think are some of the downsides to seeing spiritual formation as a ladder. I would encourage us to see it a bit more like a labyrinth. Spiritual growth uh, happens a bit more like this. Now, how many of you have ever used a labyrinth before as it relates to prayer? A few, a few of you, okay? Um, one of my favorite ways to engage in prayer is to enter into a prayer labyrinth, to participate in um, this exercise because it, for me, allows me to be active, to be thoughtful uh, as I'm engaging in uh, prayer with God. But here's, here's why I think, and maybe on the back side of your sheet or the other side, you could draw um, a bit of a maze or a labyrinth. Um, and I, I'm going to highlight what I think are a few ways that labyrinths can be helpful for us when we think of this idea of spiritual formation that Paul is getting at. The first one is this, and you can kind of just write this around your labyrinth, that I think labyrinths are participatory, all right? They're participatory. What that means is they require walking. They require movement. They require us to be engaged in it. If I just stand there looking at the labyrinth, nothing will happen. If I actually begin to engage in it, if I start by walking into it, um, then, then I'm actually starting to get something out of it. Like labyrinths are designed for participation. If you're around it, you have to participate in it, right? And so I think labyrinths set themselves up to be participatory. I think a second thing that's so important is that labyrinths are centered. What I mean by that is they're all based around a center. The whole point of entering into the labyrinth is to get ultimately to the center. And... God in Jesus, as we have talked about here over and over and over, is the center. It's what we're moving toward, a deeper knowledge, a greater relationship with the God who is intimately involved with everything and everyone. That is the center. 
And all aspects of Paul's prayer that we have been looking at are all directing us toward the center. Every single part. Knowledge of who? God, right? Be strengthened with my power? No, with whose? God's. That I would have gratitude to who? God. Everything is toward the center. So labyrinths are directing us and moving us and edging us closer and closer and closer to Jesus. And it doesn't matter if you've been walking the labyrinth for a really long time, or if you've only just begun walking in the labyrinth, everything about the labyrinth is orientated toward the center. So it's always moving us closer to the one. That's the beauty. There isn't a ladder. There's no one who's um, better off in the labyrinth than someone else because we're all looking to the center and we're all moving toward the center. I think a third idea is that labyrinths are progressive. What I mean by that is each part of the path as it winds you around is winding you into deeper awareness of who God is or deeper into the maze of spiritual formation, right? It's like moving you, it's progressive in its nature. Let me uh, show you one more image that I think can help. So if you take the elements of Paul's prayer or his four requests, it is working a bit like this labyrinth that we, as we grow in the knowledge of God, we begin to live a life worthy or walk worthy, which then moves us into being strengthened with greater power and endurance, which moves us toward more gratitude, which then moves us toward a deeper knowledge of God. And the, the rotation or the movement is continually progressive. And I would argue that it's progressive all the time in every situation of your life. So if you take forgiveness, for example, as you become more aware of the knowledge of God's will for you to forgive your brother or sister, you then move into a place where you begin to practice or exercise that forgiveness which then moves you toward a place of being more grateful for God's forgiveness, more gratitude for the way he has loved you in spite of your flaws, which motivates you to further desire to forgive, even when it requires great endurance and patience. I don't know if you've ever been in a state where you had to forgive, and then again, and then again to the same person, same situation, and it just feels like it doesn't stop. That's part of what Paul's prayer is getting at, that there's this progressive movement. It's continuing to happen. All the parts are needed. You spin through that quickly at times, and other times you spin through that very, very slowly, just like in a labyrinth. Sometimes you can walk quickly through it. Other times you take your time and you go quite slow. I know this has been true for me in areas of life, not only forgiveness, but just faith and trust in God. I know all of us probably desire to trust God more, but you have that thing in your life that you just don't feel like you can quite hand over. And how do you hand it over? Well, you kind of practice it, and you practice it with something that's a little bit smaller. And as you hand it over, you're growing in this knowledge that God is able to provide for whatever that need was or meet whatever challenge you faced. 
which then leads to greater gratitude, which leads to you desiring to walk worthy more, and it just keeps going and going, which then leads to you being able to trust with something that's very profound. And I know you've probably met people in life before that they seem to be able to just relinquish the biggest of things, and you go, how is that even possible? How did they trust God through that? And the answer is because they've trusted God through all hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of little things before they were ever prepared to trust God with that thing. And it's part of the labyrinth that you move through it and you progress at different rates and at different times and in different speeds and in an area where maybe you are so good at trusting God with that challenge, but you really struggle with forgiving that person and bitterness is growing. And for someone else, that's nothing. You've offended me. I forgive you. You're my brother or sister. I move on, but then I cling tight to something else, right? We all have areas where we are maturing. That's what spiritual formation looks like, which leads to my fourth and final word, and that is, if you can go back to the labyrinth image, I think labyrinths are also counterintuitive. Sometimes the labyrinth feels counterintuitive because it might actually feel as if you're going backwards. It might actually feel as if you're moving further away from center rather than toward the center. So when you're, if you've ever been in a labyrinth before, and if not, you can just see it visually, Sometimes when you round a corner, you get to a spot, you turn, and now I'm directly facing the center. Like everything in me senses that I see the center. And if the center represents Jesus, if the center represents the Trinity, now I'm moving. Each step I take is taking me closer and closer. And then all of a sudden, just when you feel like you're about at center, then the labyrinth turns you and you're going a different direction. And it feels counterintuitive because first off, I'm not looking at the Trinity currently. I'm actually looking the other way and it actually feels like I'm moving further away and yet the whole point of the labyrinth is to move you closer to center. But I don't know if you've ever experienced this before in faith, but there are times that faith and the movement of trusting God is incredibly counterintuitive. It feels disorienting. It feels like um, there's things that you used to hold on to that you don't feel like you can hold on to any longer. That there are times you actually feel like you're walking in the wrong direction. Some people um, describe that as like deconstructing their faith or whatever terms they want to use. The idea is that sometimes faith and progressing in a relationship with God feels disorienting, feels uh, like it, counterintuitive, like you're moving away from the very things that you held tight to. And I don't know if you've ever felt that before. I don't know if you've ever felt that experience of feeling disoriented, whether in faith or in life in general. Uh, a couple of years back, I think it was last summer or the summer before, my family and I uh, went hiking uh, with uh, another uh, couple and their kids, and we were um, 
just off in the woods. We went back about four or five miles. We um, set up camp at a lake. And the idea was just to kind of chill, hang out, have fun, look at the stars at night, that kind of deal. So we hike in, we set up. We've still got some time until dinner. And I had been reading on the trails that we were going to that there you get to this lake and really it's the end of the trip, right? It's kind of like a go in, be at the lake, leave. But they had this one additional three-mile hike where you could kind of walk on the edge of the lake and then back into the woods for three miles and you'd come on this lake that like nobody ever goes to. And the primary reason why not many people go to it is they don't really maintain that trail very well. It's kind of like, hey, if you can find your way, great. If not, there's a little bit of a trail, more like a deer path, but feel free to go on it if you want. And so I read up a little bit. I heard that the lake was pretty. I was like, man, does anyone want to go with me on that hike? And shockingly, they all were like, no, you're on your own. So uh, I decided to head out. I grabbed a few things and took off, and I was on the trail and by myself, and I'm just enjoying it and looking around at nature, and it's incredible. And I'm, I'm easily finding the path, and I'm like, man, this... Whoever wrote this map is totally confused because this is a piece of cake. And so I'm, I'm walking. Everything's fine. I come to this fallen tree right across the path. They said it was going to be challenging. I'll just climb over it. No biggie. So I climb over it, and I get to the other side, and it doesn't look like there's much of a path. It's like, man, maybe I missed the path. So I kind of take a step back, find where I see the path next, see the tree, see a little path going around it. So I'm like, oh, yeah. So I start around the tree, and then the path feels like it just vanishes. So because I had read up on it, I was like, oh, I think you just have to bushwhack a little bit, right? I mean, this seems pretty reasonable. They said it's going to be challenging. So I decided just to move forward. I mean, how hard could it be, right? So I started uh, making my way through the woods. And uh, I was leaving what I would call mental breadcrumbs, okay? So my mental breadcrumbs kind of went a little bit like this. Uh, There's a dead tree, mental breadcrumb one. I'll follow that straight until I hit like a snow patch, number two. I'll follow that further until I find the stump that's leaning at an angle with the rock next to it, three. Uh, and I just kept like creating these mental breadcrumbs. Everything was going fine. I've hiked for quite a while longer, and I come to this spot that's at the top of a ridge with like a 25-foot drop, and no, it didn't seem like there was a way to get down. And I'm like, well, I know this isn't the end of the trail, and I also know that I don't, I can't see this hidden lake that I'm supposed to see. So I decided it's getting a little later. Dinner will be coming soon. I should probably head back. I'll just follow my mental breadcrumb trail. Apparently, along the way, I think some animal had come and eaten my breadcrumbs because (laughs) they did not seem as obvious to me in the opposite direction as they did in the intended direction. And so I started getting a little nervous. 
Because I was disoriented, I was clueless, I was completely lost. I did not know where I was. I felt like I was spinning in circles. And I'm like, this isn't good. And so I got to that point where, I don't know if you've been there before, where you kind of get that like feeling like, oh, this is not good. Like, I'm lost. And then your mind starts playing tricks on you, you know? Like my mind was saying, man, you don't have a coat and it's going to get really cold tonight. You might sleep out here tonight. Where would you sleep if you stayed here? You didn't even bring bug spray. I wonder if there'll be a million mosquitoes and they'll like just eat you all night long. Um, and all these thoughts. Then I was like, my family's going to try to come looking for me and then they're not going to be able to find me and then they'll get lost. And then somebody's going to have to call for a helicopter to evacuate me. And then that's going to cost like $5,000. And then I'm going to go broke. And then my friends are going to make fun of me. And I was like, all these thoughts are going through my head. And I'm like, this is the worst. And so then, if you've been in that space, then you like start, your mind is playing tricks. And then you don't start feeling good. And so I was like, getting nervous. I started sweating my stomach. I was like, I feel like I'm going to throw up. And I'm like, but I'm not really going to throw up because it's going to come out the other end. And so I was like, I'm like, uh. so all of a sudden I'm on the side of the hill. I whip my pants down and just kind of explode onto a rock. And it, I mean, it was horrible. I'm looking around for sticks and leaves. And no, nah, that part I'm joking. I actually had brought in wet wipes with me. <laughs> you think I was unprepared? Come on. So um, I, I, I took care of my business. I, I wasn't concerned that somebody saw me because I'm, I'm in the middle of the woods. Nobody's around for good reason, right? And so I'm there going, what am I going to do? And finally, I just kind of pause. I find this tree that's like fallen over. I sit on it. Oh, I take some deep breaths and I go, okay, just get centered here for a second. It's going to be fine. And I pull out my map and my compass. Okay, now, a fun fact about trying to find your way. There's so many times in life you seek to do it alone before you use the resources you have. I could have pulled out the map and the compass earlier. I could have taken a deep breath and oriented. Instead, man, self-sufficiency gets going. I can figure this out. I've got the mental breadcrumbs, or I'll just power my way through it. Whatever obstacle it is you're facing. Has that ever been true of you where you just go, man, I'll, I'll figure it out on my own. I'm self-sufficient. I don't need God. I don't need a compass. I don't need a map. I just will do it my way. And what really needs to happen is surrender needs to happen. And that's what I needed to do. I needed to surrender. So I did. I sat down, got out the compass, oriented started following. Here I go. I'm about 30 minutes in to following the compass. And then I start feeling as if I'm not going the right way. I feel like I'm on that labyrinth, but like maybe in the point where this is where you thought you should be going, but the trail just took you this way and you can't quite see where you're supposed to be going. Not sure where it's taking you. And I felt like I was in that place. So I stopped trusting. I kind of put it back in my pocket. I climbed up on a ridge because I figured if I could just see myself, if I could look and find the campground myself, if I could listen and hear where everyone was, then I'd be fine. I could just kind of figure it out. No luck. 
I just sat there on this ridge going, man, I'm out of sorts again. I was following it, and then I didn't. And much like a labyrinth, there are times that you kind of stop trusting the process, the way it's set up, the growth that's happening. Maybe another way of saying it is you stop trusting the Spirit. And you start thinking that maybe it's when it turned you this way, it really meant to turn you that way. And you begin to not trust. And it's in those moments that I think what Jesus reminds us of is that he always just called us to follow. He didn't tell us the path beforehand. And he didn't give us the 10 steps to spiritual greatness to begin. He just said, follow me. And it's the labyrinth. And his journey that he wants us to walk on. And so I reoriented again. And I went, man, I'm going to trust the tools. I'm going to trust this journey. And then about 30 minutes later, I found myself getting really close to the shore. And about another 10 minutes later, I found myself on the trail. And then another five minutes later, I found myself where I had originally gotten off the trail. And then about 10 or 15 minutes later, I found myself back just in time for dinner. Didn't breathe a word of it to anyone. <laughs> Acted like it was a stroll in the park. How was the, the lake? Ah, I couldn't really see it. Decided to turn back. It was getting late, you know. And acted like no big deal. And yet inside, I was like, oh, man, right? And that's the thing about labyrinths, and that's a bit like discipleship. It's not a ladder. It's not uniform. It's not the same for everyone. It does not always look like a straight line. Most often, it probably looks a little bit like a maze. It looks a little bit different for each of us. And sometimes it leads you in a way you didn't think you were going to go, but it always brings you back home. Why? Because it's where Christ is. Mike Iaconelli says this, Spiritual growth cannot be reduced to mechanics. I'm all for getting the mechanics right, but spiritual growth is more than a procedure. It's a wild search for God in the tangled jungle of our souls. A search which involves a volatile mix of messy reality, wild freedom, frustrating stuckness, increasing slowness, and a healthy dose of gratitude. See, I'm convinced that the journey is the formation, that the walking is what bears the fruit. And Paul is inviting us in with this prayer to a messy spirituality, one that's full of change, but it is a call to walk worthy. And I'm convinced it's only possible with Jesus and it's best experienced in community. Let's pray. God, we, we sometimes want, and this is why I think we create ladders, it's because we want the 10 easy steps. We want to be able to say, ah, oh, look how far I've come, or we want to prove that we've come further than others, or that we're better, or that... Um, Somehow we can sit back and say we've arrived or all these reasons why we prefer that to the way I actually think you've set it up, which is a bit messy. 
It's a wild tangle of our souls to pursue you. And I pray that we would be people who do that, that we would be willing to walk into the labyrinth, that we would be willing to participate regardless of how long we've been journeying, that we would be people who understand that it's counterintuitive and that it requires us to walk. And that at times, it's disorienting. At times, it feels uneasy. But in that, at all times, it's leading us to you. Pray that you would guide us into that. In Jesus' name, amen.